Good morning. How are you guys this morning? Okay. Ready. Okay, here we go. I'm going to start off with a confession. Um, This may catch you by surprise, but my children are sinners. Some of you have had contact with my children, and that does not catch you by surprise at all. But um, my children are sinners. This, this week, I had an experience with that. I was upstairs trying to get ready for the morning, and I hear my two boys just laying into my daughter, just belittling her. And this is a problem in my household. We're always working on it. Everybody picks on everybody. They're sinners. So I said to myself, I've got to go down and deal with this. And I, this makes me... this particular thing makes me so angry because to hear one of my children belittled by my others just makes me so angry. So I knew that I was right on that threshold of handling this either way. So I stopped and I said, Lord, I need to go downstairs and I need to deal with this problem and I feel like sinning. And so will you help me not to sin when I go downstairs? Will you help me to lead them to you and to do what is right? Will you keep me from sin? So I walk down the stairs. Probably takes me like 10 seconds, right? And I lay into them. (laughs) And I just keep going, right? Until one of my sons says, Hey, Mom, isn't it ironic that you're doing the same thing you're yelling at us for doing? So my real confession is that I'm a sinner, too. In the 10 seconds that it took me to get downstairs, I totally forgot about my prayer because all that I could think about was how angry I was. All I could think about was my own self and my feelings. That's kind of the story of sin, isn't it? We forget. We just put our eyes on whatever's right in front of us. We forget the vows that we've just made to God. That's our passage today. That's how it begins. Our passage today begins with sin. And in fact, this word is used here, which is interesting because in all of Exodus up to this point, the word sin has only been used 10 times. And, and it's not really in conjunction with the Israelites' sin. They, it, Moses has yet to say in the book of Exodus that the Israelites have sinned. Now, that's not because they haven't sinned. We know that. They've grumbled. They've complained. They've, um, they've doubted. They've resisted God. And yet, Moses has basically reserved the word sin for this occurrence. So why is that? Well, think back on all the instructions that we've had for the tabernacle. And God delivering the people over the, through the Red Sea from the Egyptians, God is creating a people for himself. And we saw creation language, creation motif in the structure of the tabernacle, right? This is a repetition of the creation narrative. Okay, so that's what we have up until this point. And then God's been laying out for his people what they should do and what they should not do. Sound familiar? He did the same thing for Adam and Eve. And then Adam and Eve were faced with a choice. The Israelites here are faced with a choice. How will they respond? What will they do? And just like Adam and Eve, the Israelites sin. 
So I think Moses has reserved this word for this time, for this purpose, to show that, that history repeats itself, that the creation is going on again, that God's uh, fellowship with his people is completely broken. And what happened when Adam and Eve sinned, they were thrown out of the garden, separated from his presence. So that leaves us with this big tension to set up our passage today. What's going to happen to the Israelites? Are they going to be completely kicked out of his presence? And what will that look like? Because that's the consequence of sin. That's what we know so far. But in stark contrast to the people's sin, in our passage today, we see God's glory. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. God's people are great sinners. They sin against him in a great way. But God demonstrates his glory through forgiveness. God's people are great sinners, but God demonstrates his glory through forgiveness. So we're going to break the passage up into three sections. First, we're going to look at chapter 32, verse 1 through 33, 6. We're going to see the people's problem. And then God's glory in 33, 7 through through 34, 9. And then the covenant renewed in chapter 34, verses 10 through 35. So first, the people's problem, God's glory, and the covenant renewed. And before I really get into this, I need to say that I'm sure that as you guys were talking, like so many questions came up from this text. And I just need to issue a disclaimer. I'm not probably going to answer most of those questions. Because as I was looking at these chapters, I was struggling about what to do this morning. Because for me, there were like endless questions in this. And there were just so many things that I wanted to expand, expand on and look at and try to answer if I could. But I just kept coming back to these chapters are so rich with application. And we touched on it a little bit in our study guide. But I think that's where we need to spend our time this morning. So in lieu of answering all the questions which I'd love to do, but we would be here for a long time. I'm going to focus on application this morning. So let's jump in and look at the people's problem. And here we're looking at at chapter 32, verse 1, all the way up to 33, 6. So the Israelites have a big problem. They have committed a great sin. They've broken covenant with God already, just 40 days after he gave it, just 40 days after his huge display of of glory and majesty on the mountain, they've broken covenant by making a God for themselves and worshiping this God, this golden calf. And they've even credited this idol with having been the one who brought them out of Egypt. I mean, can you believe the offense to God? This does not make God happy. So now they have another problem. They face God's wrath. The people deserve what God proposes first, to be consumed for their sin, to be destroyed by his wrath. That's what they deserve. But Moses knows God, and he knows his promises, and he knows his character, and so he gives this beautiful, poignant plea for mercy. He appeals on three grounds, on God's past work of redemption. What would it say about God, his character? What would it say about the redemption that he Um, gave the Israelites if he just strikes them down. He also appeals to God's reputation among the nations. How would the nations know that he's God? What would they say if he brings them out only to destroy them? 
And then third, he appeals to God's covenant promises. Moses knows that God made an unconditional promise to Abraham to make him the father of many nations. And Moses knows that God's character is to not break his promises. So he appeals to those promises. And God honors his appeal by relenting from bringing disaster on the people. Not changing his mind, but I think doing what he always intended to do through the work of his servant Moses. So Moses descends from the mountain, and what he finds, I think, is even worse than what he expected. I just wonder what sort of plea he would have made from God if he knew exactly what his people were up to. He comes down, he sees this, he drops the the, um, the tablets, thank you, the word's just gone, he drops the tablets, he confronts Aaron, and Aaron's response, man, does it seem at all familiar? Aaron blame shifts. It's the people's fault. They're evil. They made me do it. It's not my fault. I had to because they made me. Then he excuses his sin. Uh, I just did what they asked me to. It wasn't my idea. I didn't know what else to do. He justifies. I just threw the gold in and then out popped this calf. I mean, that's believable, right? It's ridiculous. His excuses sound ridiculous, don't they? But excuses for sin always do. They, they make perfect sense to us when we're making them. But when we have God's view on the situation, our excuses for sin are always ridiculous. It's the foolishness of sin that all people at all times have been mastered by because that's the curse of sin in the world. And the consequences for the Israelites' sin are disastrous. Many of their number die by the hand of, the, of their own people, of the Levites, and also, for, I assume, from the plague that God sends. The problem is sin, and now their problem is the effects, the consequences of it. So how about us today? Because we are in Christ. So we're no longer mastered by sin, right? That's true. We are no longer slaves to sin. And yet, experientially, we know that we still fall into it far too often, don't we? How are you prone to sin? Are you aware of what things lead you into sin? The Israelites, if they had known that being without Moses for that period of time would cause them to sin, would they have been able to put up guards and protections? How do you respond when you do fall into sin? Aaron had a choice. He could have sincerely repented when he was confronted by his sin, but he made excuses. I know from experience, and you probably do too, that it's really tempting and it's really easy to justify our sin, to make excuses, to blame shift. But it's always better. It's always freeing. It's always right when we repent. When we sin, we need to run to God rather than running away from him, continuing to sin or making excuses for our behavior. We also need to see sin for what it really is, that it is outright rebellion against God. There is no such thing as innocent sin. The Israelites could have made a case for why their sin wasn't really that big of a deal 
or why they were excused for it. But there is no excuse for sin. Never. And there's no such thing as innocent sin or little sin or sin that doesn't hurt anyone. And I think so many times we want to tell ourselves that there is. But that's just not true. Sin is always ultimately against God. Sin is always deserving of the consequence of death. And I know how easy it is to not believe that. But Moses knew it. And that's why he commissions the Levites to go and kill their fellow Israelites. Now maybe that seems like an extreme reaction. Because in our own sense of justice, it does sound like an extreme reaction. But is it? If we feel like it is, I think we are making too little of sin. It's easy to think this way because we become far too comfortable with sin. Do you really believe that sin seeks to destroy you? Sin seeks to kill you? That the consequences of sin are death? Friends, sin has to be cut off or it will cut off. Sin brings death. So we should not think that we can flirt with sin without consequences. We have to cut it off. This is really serious warning here because it's a really serious problem that the Israelites have. So how do we do it? How do we cut off sin? Well, first of all, like the Israelites, we need an intercessor. So here we have some good news shining through. Moses went up to the Lord. He hoped to make atonement for the people's sin. His life in exchange for theirs is what he offered. The Lord declines his offer. Why is that? Well, Moses can't stand in for those who have sinned because he is a sinner himself. He is not the Passover lamb. That role is still to come. That role is in Jesus. Because it required a perfect, spotless lamb to make atonement. Moses couldn't save his people from the plague of judgment, but Jesus can. Jesus saves us. He stood on our place, taking God's wrath upon himself. That is the primary way that we cut off sin, by being in Christ, by placing our hope in Jesus, by submitting our lives to him, and then experiencing the freedom that comes from being his children, freedom from sin and death helps us to cut off sin. But we know, still all of us, that our faith in Jesus gives us the power to say no to sin, but we often don't. We still reside in these sinful, cursed bodies, and we fall into sin far too often. So what do we do to cut off sin when we're already in Christ and yet we fall? Well, we use the resources that God has given us. He's given us his word so that we can know him, and when we know him, It's harder to keep sitting, isn't it? He's given us prayer and fellow believers. When we fill our minds with truth, it helps us to see the deceitfulness of sin, and it helps us to believe, to really believe that it does lead to death. As we see life, we believe what leads to death. And then we pray and we ask God for help, and we rely on the Holy Spirit to enable us to flee from sin, because he will do that. He will answer that prayer for us. And then when we do sin, we don't hide from it. We don't hide our sin. Uh, we, We need to tell other people. We need to confess it. We need to confess it to the Lord. We need to confess it to other believers. We need to ask them for their prayers and for their speaking into our life, for them to hold us accountable. 
And we need to repent from sin when we do sin. When we confess to God, we need to mean it, and we need to turn from it. We do this by not justifying or making excuses, but for owning our actions. We choose to believe that sin wants to destroy us and that the way to life is in Jesus. And this might mean taking drastic steps, giving up something that you love, changing patterns that are deeply embedded. But it's worth it to take drastic steps to cut off sin before it cuts you off. Prove that you belong to God by taking your sin seriously. That's our challenge from the first section of our text this morning. Now, our second text, second section is God's glory. And this is a welcome relief from the weight of what we've just looked at about our sin. Because in contrast to our sin is God's glory. Even though Moses has interceded for the people and the Lord relented from bringing total disaster upon the people, the consequences for their actions are really steep. Then we come to verses 7, in chapter 33, verses 7 through 11. And did these verses seem kind of out of place to you? Did you wonder how they fit in? Well, the point here is that God's presence has been with the people, but only at a distance. Moses had to go far away from the people to meet with God, and only Moses could approach him there. He's been up on the mountain receiving instructions for building this tabernacle that will dwell in their midst. God will no longer be at a distance, and it will, only, it will no longer be only Moses who can be present with him. He's, God intends to make his presence within all of Israel. So this section is here, I think, so that we can feel the tension. What will happen to God's plan now? Will he leave them without his presence at all? Or will he continue his plan to be present among his people? So that brings us to verses 12 through 23, where Moses once again pleads on behalf of his people, and this time he begs God's presence to remain with them. He does not want to continue on this journey without God's presence leading them. He makes similar arguments as he did up on Mount Sinai. What he's asking for is God's forgiveness, his mercy, his grace. He's asking that God would not treat them as their sins deserve, but that he would continue his covenant with them. And then he makes this kind of audacious request. He asks that he can see God's glory. I mean, Moses has seen the burning bush. He's seen all the plagues. He talks to God personally. He saw all of God's majesty at Mount Sinai. And then he ate a covenant meal with God. And yet he has the nerve to ask for even more of of seeing God. Why? What is that all about? Well, isn't that what encounters with God do? When we see God, when we get a taste of his presence, we want more of it. We want to know him more and to spend more time with him, see more of his glory. We want to understand him better. We want to feel closer to him, and I hope that's how you feel today. If it's not, don't despair. How do we desire more of God? By spending time with him, by knowing him. That's why Moses wanted to see more of him, because he knew who he was, and he spent time with him. We do it by, we desire God more by asking for more of him. And this is a request that God will grant. 
in his own timing and in his own perfect way, he will always grant this request to us. But Moses here, I think, is also doing something else. He's asking for a sign from God, a sign that God will still keep his covenant. So God ate the covenant meal with Moses and the elders back in chapter 24, remember? And Moses here wants a similar sign, that God is going to renew the covenant with his people. That's what he's saying. God, are you going to renew the covenant? And if you are, give me a sign. Give me a sign of your presence. Let me see your glory. And God says, yeah, I'll do that. God will pass by Moses in all of his glory, showing him his back to reaffirm the covenant because God is a forgiving, gracious, glorious God. And as God passes by, we read in chapter 34 a description of himself. This is how God describes himself as he passes before Moses. So we should pay attention to what he has to say. Verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is what God has to say about himself when he renews the covenant. He is merciful, gracious, slow to anger. That's evident in in this passage. Abounding in love and faithfulness, and he forgives iniquity and trespasses and sin. God is glorious because of his character, because he is full of goodness that his people don't deserve. These are the descriptions that we long to hear about God, right? He is merciful to us. He's gracious. He's loving. He's uh, slow to anger, and he forgives. We need to hear these things. We need to know these things. We need to believe them. They make us feel good about God. But that's not all he has to say about himself. He's also the God who will not clear the guilty. He will not excuse guilt. This leaves us with a great tension, right? How can God forgive sins if he won't clear the guilty? How can he be merciful and loving if he will visit sins upon future generations? How do these things square? How can he be all of these things? The answer is found in Christ. How does God hold the guilty accountable? How does he turn his wrath on the guilty while being forgiving, merciful, gracious, loving, the kind of God he says he is? Well, by appointing his son to take on the full weight of guilt. By making Jesus the guilty one. God's wrath turned against his son and was satisfied because of it. If we are in Christ... We are no longer guilty. We no longer fear his wrath. We are left with a holy, pure relationship with God. We get to know him as merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. We are forgiven once and for all because the weight of our sin fell on Jesus instead. That's how God does not clear the guilty, but is also providing 
forgiveness and love and mercy on his people. We are forgiven. And we just need to meditate on that, don't we? We just need to take that in. We need to worship our glorious God. And I think that should be one of our main application takeaways from these chapters. It's just to meditate on who we are without God, who we are with God, and how marvelous, how glorious that makes God. It's astounding. But we also shouldn't discount the second half of the proclamation of God, even if we belong to him. God will not clear the guilty. And the first thing I want to say about that is that we should find encouragement in this. Because we look at the world around us that's often spinning out of control, that sometimes are just like these enormous acts of evil that we don't really know what to do with. And we need to remember that God will not clear the guilty. These things are in God's hands. He has them under control. We can trust that he's not going to overlook these things, even if it seems like it. We can hope in this side of God's character. So rather than letting our minds spiral out of control sometimes in fear and worry and anxiety about the state of this world, we can remember that God is in control and he sees all of it and he's not going to let it go. But there's also a somber warning for us in this aspect of God's character. He won't clear the guilty. And we all have loved ones who are guilty, who are still guilty in God's eyes. Do you believe what God says? Do you take seriously that so many of the people that you encounter on any given day are facing God's wrath? Do we have compassion on these people? Do we want them to know the God who is merciful and forgiving and loving? Do we truly desire that? We need to be walking in obedience to God so that people around us see him in our lives. We should be praying regularly for those that come into our path that don't know him. So each morning, I've put an alarm on my phone, and each morning it goes off, and it reminds me to pray for several people that I've committed to praying for every day. That's one thing you might do. You might put a note on your mirror, on your bathroom mirror, or um, make a habit of every time you get in the car or every time you get in the shower, you pray for people who are lost, who need Jesus. Think about, if we all just chose, like, even one, but if we chose three or four or five to commit to praying to regularly, what a beautiful thing. And then we should be ready to speak, to grab those opportunities that present themselves to talk about our hope in Jesus. And if we're praying for these people regularly, we'll be more ready. We'll be ready to hear, to seize the opportunities, to acknowledge them, recognize them, and then we can trust God to give us the words to say. So we need to be prepared. We need to trust the Holy Spirit to lead us in sharing our faith. Because God is a forgiving God. His glory is shown in the fact that he keeps his covenant even when we fail on our end. And that brings us to our third point, the covenant renewed. After God shows Moses his glory, he renews the covenant. He repeats the covenant stipulations, and then once again, he writes the commandments on the tablets of stone for the people to have and observe. Once again, Moses stays 40 nights on the mountain, and when he comes down, his face is shining. Moses has seen God's glory as a sign of the covenant, and now he reflects that glory on his own face. When the Israelites look at him, they see God's promises displayed on Moses' face. 
God's commitment, God's glory is being radiated onto Moses. In other words, they see God's presence among them because of Moses. And it's too powerful for them. It's too intimidating. Now, it's just a reflection of the real thing, God's glory. So they can look on it without dying. They're not looking at God's actual glory. It's a reflection. But they, they're intimidated by it. And so Moses keeps his face veiled. And it's another reminder of the distance between God and his people, which once again brings us to Jesus. Upon his incarnation, Jesus was fully man and fully God. The glory of God appeared on earth in Jesus' presence. His ultimate glorification came on the cross with his death, resurrection, and ascension, and it tore the veil, and now we can be present with God in the midst of his glory without any fear, without any intimidation, just glorying in it. And if, that, if it's not enough that we should see God's glory in Christ, 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that we, like Moses, are reflecting God's glory because of his presence among us. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is present in each one of us. Therefore, we radiate the glory of God. No, our faces aren't glowing, probably, right? If they are, it could just be good makeup. But we radiate the glory of God. So what does that look like? Well, our lives should be glowing. It looks like having mercy, grace, being slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It means growing in godliness as we spend time with the Lord. It means that our lives look different. They look attractive. They glow with the glory of God. It means that when my kids are belittling one another, I pray for mercy, grace, love, patience, forgiveness, and I really mean it. And when I come down the stairs, I display that for them rather than laying into them. And it means that if I don't do that, it's not over. I go find my kids on the playground when we go to school, and I've had that 10-minute walk to think about my actions, and I apologize to them. And I say, you're right. I did to you what you were doing, and it was wrong, and I'm sorry. Because that's the the glory of God in our lives, too. We make mistakes, but we apologize for it. When we do these things, individually, when we come together as a community, as the church of God, God's glory shines that much brighter when we're all together. Because we don't just reflect his glory individually, but as his church, and it's through his church that God's glory is ultimately manifest in the new covenant. And as we live in unity, we grow in godliness, and we grow in our love for one another, and his glory is displayed all around us. That is so beautiful. So we're like Moses. We display God's glory. We radiate it. We reflect it. What a gift we have. And we live with enduring hope that one day soon we will see God face to face, not his back. We'll see his whole face, and we will be face to face with his glory as we spend eternity in his presence. This is the future 
that the glorious God is making for us saved sinners because of his great mercy and love. All week long, I've been thinking to myself, our sins are many, but his mercy is more. And so I think we're going to close this morning by singing that song, and let's just sing it as a prayer to the Lord, that our sins are many, but his mercy is more. Thanks. Good singing.